I get up really early on Sunday mornings, and uh, I was very delusional this morning as I got up. I had a cup of coffee in my hand and, I, and my Bible, and I bumped my arm and spilled coffee all over Exodus, and uh, got really upset about it. And then I realized that there are not coffee stains all throughout your Bible. You're not reading your Bible enough. Amen? I think that's actually found in the Bible sometimes. I think it's in the book of Joel. And so, turn with me, and hopefully your coffee-stained Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, Keisha will get you a Bible. Thank you, Keisha. And, uh, you know, feel free to drop a little coffee in there if it warms it up for you. Exodus chapter 33. Let's pray. God, we come to you today uh, humbly seeking your presence. We recognize, God, that we are nothing without it. We're nothing without you. You are our all in all, our Alpha and Omega. We love you. We embrace you this morning. I ask, as we look into these ancient words, that you uh, speak through me, speak to us, speak to my heart, convict us. I pray that this isn't a lecture, but it's worship to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, Exodus chapter 33, are we all there? In verse 12, where we're going to start. It says this, Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Now, I think it's important here to have a little backstory as to what's actually happening. We're jumping right into the middle of what would be tumultuous, turbulent times for the people of Israel. And we're going to try to pick up in this story right here, smack dab in the middle. And so to do that, I think it's good to have some backstory. All right. So a little quiz we're going to start out today. Uh, are you guys ready? Taking caps on. Ready? Here we go. This is a quiz. So first one to get it. Wins something? I don't know what. I'm trying to think of something. <laughs> Quiz. Here we go. Number one. Where? Uh, uh, what is the book of Exodus about? X. You got it. You got it. Exile. Leaving the exile. The Exodus. Right. Yeah. That's uh, actually about Exodus. It's about them leaving exile. Leaving Egypt, they were the people of God. Really, had their foundations as slaves in Egypt, and this whole book of Exodus is this grand story about God delivering His people from exile, from slavery. And uh, all right, next question: Why was Israel being in slavery a problem? It should be fairly simple. It's not really a hard trick question. Okay. okay. All right. Um, the answer is because slavery is bad. 
That's why. Um, God's people were in slavery, and nobody should be in slavery. God has this, I mean, and a little even more in depth, God has actually promised them what? He's promised them a land of freedom, right? This land of where they can flourish, where they can have liberation, and, and they're in slavery. And so it's just bad on all fronts. Number three, who did God call to lead Israel out of slavery? This requires a little bit of biblical knowledge here. Who did God call to lead Israel out of slavery? Moses. Good. Good. What's, you almost said Jesus? No. Jesus! <laughs> no, right, so God, Moses was called to lead these people out of, out of slavery. And that's who we're actually talking about today is Moses, the, the, the leader that God called to lead them out of slavery. Now, what happened for 40 years after Israel was liberated from slavery? They wander the desert, exactly. So Moses leads them out, and for 40 years, they're wandering the desert. They're nomads, all right? And that's where we pick up our stories. In the middle of this wandering, they've been liberated. By the way, if you know anything about the story of Israel, what do they keep doing over and over and over again? As they're messing up. up. Great way to put it. Forgetting God. Forgetting the fact that God brought them out of slavery, that God is there for them, that God loves them, and they keep messing up over and over and over again. And that's where we're at today. A little backstory, uh, more specifically to this, this particular passage where we're at. Moses was called to Mount Sinai. Does anybody know? Here's another quiz question. Does anybody know why Moses was called to Mount Sinai? That, that happened there. Why did God take him up there? Ten Commandments, right. So God was giving them Moses the Ten Commandments. And while Moses was up on the mountain, in chapter 32 we see this, while he's up on the mountain, the people of Israel down below, I'll actually even read it to you. And, uh, it says, this, this, is, this is their response. Moses is up on the mountain, and the, the people of Israel said this. So they said this to Aaron. Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what happened to him. So Moses is up on the mountain, and the people, number one, lose faith in their leader. They lose faith that Moses, you know, that he's going to actually come back down the mountain. He might have deserted them. He might have been eaten by a bear. We don't know. We don't know what happened to him. Uh, And and two, they lost faith in God, that God is actually going to continue to lead them. And so what do they do? They take off their jewelry, take off their rings. Anything that's made of, and they throw it into this fire, and then they take all of that, and they create this golden calf. And then they actually begin to worship this golden calf. And they're like, this is the God that's going to go before us. And so at this, uh, God is sort of upset. Rightly so. This is, I want to I show you God's response to this. Moses is still up on the mountain, and in chapter 32, God says, uh, the, the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who you brought up out of Egypt. Verse 9. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked. They're stiff-necked people, and nothing makes God more upset than 
a stiff-necked people, a stub- like a stubborn child. They're forgetful. They're, they're self-righteous. They're, they're selfish. God just ha- has been providing. He, I mean, they, think about this. These people actually saw waters part, and they walked through on dry ground to liberate them from slavery, and they forgot that. <laughs> and they forgot, like, God has split, split seas for us. They forgot his power, and they've seen God's glory, and they forgot it. And God is like there, the stiff-necked people. And um, so then here is the terrible consequences. Look at verse, in chapter 33, verse 3. This is what God says to Moses as a result. He says this. In verse 3, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Go up to the land that I've promised you, the, the, the land that I've covenanted with Abraham about, the land that you're going to have. I want you to, to lead your people to this land. Keep on moving, pushing forward. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Wow. I mean, think about this. The, the presence of God is being revoked. They're, they're selfish. They're forgetful. They keep on messing up over and over. And God is like, I am done. And I'm not, it's not like I'm going to go against my promise. It's not that I'm going to break my covenant. God never goes back on his covenant. You're going to have the land, he says. The covenant, my end of the bargain is going to be fulfilled. But this incredible token of God's presence will be removed. And they will not have it. No longer will God be with them. And at this, the people begin to weep. They, 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 they weep because of their sin. They start taking off their jewelry, their ornaments. It says we're just, they, they, whoever was wearing ornaments, jewelry, took it off. They, I mean, if, if, if they could take it off for the calf, they could at least take, take it off for God. You know, they're, they're just like so... It's like they're standing uh, naked and their, their sin is just right in front of their face and they don't know what to do. And they're weeping. They're like, and they're also weeping because this is the stiffest punishment that they could ever imagine. They could not imagine anything worse than having the presence of God actually be, being taken away. And uh, Matthew Henry puts it like this. He says, of all bitter fruits and consequences of sin, that which true penance most lament and dread most is God's departure from them. And the people are, they're all out weeping. And, and here's Moses' response in, uh, in verse 15, chapter 33. Moses said to him, Moses says to God, if your presence does not go with us, Moses said, do not send us up from here. If you're not going to go, God, don't don't even set aside the, the acquiring of the promised land is a small joy without you. Moses can't fathom life without the strong presence of God in it. Moses knows that he, in and of himself, is completely, 100%, utterly powerless. Moses knows, I mean, from the beginning of the story, 
When Moses was called to lead the people out of Egypt, he knew he didn't have it within himself to do so. Moses knew that he didn't have the skills, he didn't have the talent, he didn't have the wherewithal to go forward. He was completely powerless without God. And he also knew that without God's presence, they would have completely no witness in the world around them. What's, what's the point? Why even go forward? We're, we're going to stay here, we're going to sit in the middle of this wilderness, and we're going to rot to death if, if you don't go. We're not going forward. The difference between Moses and religious people. We're going to talk a little bit about religion this morning, right? Moses and religious people. Moses can't fathom life without God. He can't fathom it. Life without this dynamic presence of God. Religious people, and by the way, we're in the series Religion is Dead. We're talking about the fact that religion, in and of itself, does not bring us fulfillment. Religious people, according to the modern critique of religion, using God to accrue power, da-da-da. Religious people structure their life in such a way that they don't really need God. Perfect example of this, when I was young, I would say that I was fairly religious, meaning I went to church on Sundays, I did most everything I was supposed to do, and I didn't do most everything I wasn't supposed to do. I tried you know, to do the right thing. Um, but the reality is, is I woke up in the morning on my own power, thinking about what I have to do that day, thinking about school, thinking about basketball, thinking about this girl, whatever it was. I went through my day. I went day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out without really ever thinking about God. And my life was structured in a way in which I didn't have to. I could pretty much go through life on my own without ever falling on my knees crying out for God's help. That's number one. Number two, Moses uh, has been called to a mission which is dangerous Religious people have been called to a mission which is safe. Moses has been called to confront Pharaoh and to lead these people out of, out of, out of slavery, out of bondage, into the wilderness. It was beyond, Moses didn't, he didn't want this task. It was beyond him. But he's called to this extremely dangerous mission where he could literally lose his life. Whereas I would say religious people are called to a mission which is safe. And what I mean by that is, you know that you're religious if church is a nice thing in your life. Like you're kind of going through life, and you've got your bills to pay, you've got your recreational things that you want to do, you've got your goals in life, your dreams. And one thing that would really make your life a lot nicer is to have a little God in there. Is to go to church once in a while, be encouraged, be inspired by the music, maybe even have a tear come to your eyes once in a while. Be inspired by the teaching, go home, meet some friends at church, have develop some quote unquote Christian community, and it makes your life nicer. So Moses called to an extremely dangerous mission. Religious people called to a nice thing. 
something that makes their life more comfortable. Number three, Moses' future is completely 100% reliant on God. He has no future without God. I mean, literally, they're in the middle of the wilderness. They will die if God stops sending them food from heaven. They literally will die. They are completely reliant on the fact that God will provide for them, not future as in 40 years from now, but future as in 40 minutes from now. His future is completely reliant on God. Religious people's future is completely reliant on their 401k, savings bonds, retirement plans. Again, they, they structure their life in such a way to where they don't ever have to fully rely and trust on God. A guy named Alexander Schmemann. 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 I don't know how to say it, but don't tell anybody. He's an Orthodox theologian. He said, one can love religion like anything else in life. You can love religion. Sports, science, stamp collecting. One can love religion for its own sake without relation to God or the world or life. What's he saying? He's saying essentially this. Religion can entirely exist in a world where there is no God. In a world where there is no God, religion can be a powerful entity. Real spirituality, on the other hand, I submit, true spirituality cannot exist in a world with no God. So Abraham, or I'm sorry, Moses is, is on his knees and, and, and he's, he's, he's begging God, please don't take your presence from us. If you remove your presence, we will just stay here. We will remain here in the desert and we will die. And God responds in verse 17, and I want to read his response. He said, the Lord said to Moses, I will do... The very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you. I will do. We're dismissed. (laughs) Um, Over the weekend. That was strange. (laughs) I will do what you've asked. Your presence, my presence will go with you. Because Moses, I am pleased with you. Moses, your people are stiff-necked. They're forgetful. They're selfish. They're self-reliant. They're self-righteous. They're stubborn. They're idolaters. And I want to destroy them. But I won't, and and actually I won't revoke my presence from you. Why? Because I'm I'm pleased with you. Moses, you have uh, listened to me when I've called and, and, and I've, I've asked you to lead these people out of Egypt, you've actually done it. You've listened to me. You've obeyed. Moses, I am pleased with you. And because of that, I will, my presence will, will stay with you. 
Now, here's the haunting question that we need to ask this morning. How much of our lives, how much of my life, how much of our life as a community, how much of our lives are structured in a way in which we do not have to rely on God? How much of what we do is completely dependent on us? It's where we never have to beg God for his presence, for his movement. Are we like Harvey Carey, who grew up poor? Saw Harvey speak, and, and he describes it as Pope. He said there's two types of poor. There's poor, and there's Pope. He said, I grew up Pope. He says it better than that. He grew up poor. He's a pastor of of uh, Faith Covenant Church in Detroit, and the it's it's the poorest state, the poorest city, the poorest zip code, Detroit, Michigan. In Baltimore, the saying goes, "At least we're not." You ever heard it? Detroit? <laughs> never heard that. I, I've never said that. But his church is in Detroit, and what they do in Detroit. They go urban camping, that's what they call it. Harvey takes guys from his church, and they go and they find the crack houses in their neighborhood. And they go in front of the crack house, they set up a tent, tents. They all got tents. They're going urban camping in front of the crack houses. And they set up tents, and they camp in front of the crack houses. And here's the thing, like, somebody who's, who's merely religious... Somebody who is simply using God to accrue power to make their life easier would look at this and they would say, that is ridiculous. There's nothing good about that. You're going to get shot. You're going to die. But here's the thing. Since they've been doing it, they have closed down, they have have shut down eight crack houses in their neighborhood through camp. Harvey believes in a God which is much bigger than religion. He has a faith. Much, it's much more beyond uh, what can God do for me. Harvey believes in a God who is powerful, who is living, who is dynamic, and he believes in a God that is extremely present in his life and in the life of their church. And they do things which don't make sense. But they shut down eight crack houses. Or we hear stories like, Dorothy uh, Stang, she was working in Brazil. She was somebody who uh, was used to uh, living around people who wanted her, wanted her dead. Uh, in Brazil, she was working with peasant laborers and keeping them from exploitation. And while walking to a meeting one day, two armed men intercepted her path, and she knew what they were going to do. And taking out her Bible, she began to read to them. And for a few precious moments, they listened before they opened fire. And Dorothy was shot six times in her head, her neck, her body. 
Tragedy? No. Dorothy believed in a God which was living and powerful and dynamic, which would take care of her in this life and in the next. It was much more, much bigger than what we can touch and what we can feel, what we can see with our own eyes. It was much bigger than that. She believed in this eternal dynamic God and had this amazing faith in which she put her life on the line and lost her life for the sake of others. Desmond Tutu put it best when he declared under the, while under the scrutiny of uh, his apartheid government's ELOF commission, he said this, There is nothing the government can do to me that will stop me from being involved in what I believe God wants me to do. I do not do it because I like doing it. I do it because I am under what I believe to be the influence of God's hand. I cannot help it. When I see injustice, I cannot keep quiet. For as Jeremiah says, when I try to keep quiet, God's word burns like a fire in my breast. But what is, what is it that they can ultimately do? The most awful thing that they can do is kill me. And death is not the worst thing that could happen to a Christian. He believes in a big God. A very dynamic, a very much so a living God who's present in his life and in his situation, in his work. Two years ago, Jess and I quit our job, quit my, quit my job over on the Eastern Shore, and we moved over here into Baltimore to do something that, at the time, looking back, I had no clue what I was getting into. I, I didn't even know where to begin. I think I had read one church planting book, and I, I put it down halfway through it. Should have read the whole thing, probably. I had no clue. Two years later, where I've observed the movement of God, of putting together a community of people who, for most of us, six months ago, didn't even know each other, much less two years ago. Putting together a community of people, we're, we're seeing new faces, we're growing, we're, we're seeing people come to Christ, we're seeing lives changed. People are, are asking, how can we serve? How can we make a difference in Baltimore? How can we see the city changed? Um, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. There's money to be raised. We're working on little support. I don't know if I'll have a, any money left at the end of the year. Um, we're, we're seeing people of all cultures and all backgrounds come together and learn to love, learn to forgive, learn to work together. And here's the reality, guys. This is my admission. Standing before you, pastor in the garden, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no clue. And I'm not just saying that. I'm not just trying to be self-deprecating. I'm like Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, when, when Solomon says, I'm, I'm nothing but a child and... And I don't know how to fulfill my duties. Spread, I hate spreadsheets. I, I don't know what to, you know, I, I don't consider myself an amazing leader. I don't, have, I'm, I don't consider myself a scholar. You know, I'm not a, a uh, social expert as to how we can change. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. And if we can keep that a secret within us, that would be a good thing. Like, don't tell anybody else that. Let's just leave, you know, what we talk about here stays here. Don't tell our supporters. Don't tell anybody else. 
I don't know what I'm doing. All I have is this book and my reliance on the presence of God. That's all I have. And I'm serious. I can't imagine what Moses must have felt like when when God says to him, you can keep going, you can keep moving forward, and you're going to get there. You can keep pushing, you can keep reaching out, you can build a church, you're going to get there, you're going to become self-supportive, you're going to do everything that you want to do. But my presence will not go with you. I can't imagine what Moses must have felt like. When God said, my presence will not be with you. Because that's all I have. And then when we really get honest with ourselves and we really like stop and reflect on this and think about this, what do we realize? We realize that we are no different than the people of Israel. We're stiff-necked, we're stubborn, we're selfish. We're idolaters. I mean, I look at my own life and I see where I'm stubborn in my own life and where I'm forgetful. I've seen God move here and I've seen him get me out of this situation here. And then I begin to worry once again. I'm as forgetful as the people of Israel were of God's power in my own life. Stiff-necked, stubborn. Selfish. I mean, the reason God, uh, Moses wanted God's presence to go with him was because Moses wanted to experience God's glory. He, wanted, he said, God, show me your glory. And he wanted to show, to display God's glory to the rest of the world. It was all about God's glory. And where we get selfish is when we think that it's actually about our glory. Like there's no greater fulfillment. There's no greater joy in experiencing the glory of God and displaying God's glory to the rest of the world. There's no greater joy than experiencing the glory of God and displaying His glory to the rest of the world. There's no greater joy than experiencing God's glory and and, and displaying God's glory to the rest of the world. But we don't believe that. We actually think there's more joy in finding glory for ourselves. And we become selfish people. And we we find fulfillment in other things. We find fulfillment in in sports, in watching this game, or we find fulfillment in sex, or we find fulfillment in food, or we find fulfillment in our in our family, or with our uh, with our spouse, or our boyfriend, or our girlfriend, and we we become idolaters. And so, what I'm saying, and this is what this is why I say this is the haunting question is. When we look at this big picture here, we are no different than the people that God said, I'm turning my back on. We're no different than the Israelites who forgot God and started building altars. We're no different. And then here's the question that's really haunting is which one of us is Moses? Like seriously, literally, who in here, in this room, in this rec center, who in here has God come to and said, because I'm pleased with you, my presence will be with the rest of the people. Anybody? Like, who, who is the Moses in this group? That God has come, because he hasn't come to me and said, Joel, because of you, I'm pleased with you, I'm pleased with the fact that you've always been faithful to me, and I'm going to have my presence with the rest of the people in the church. 
It's never happened. So how do we know then that God's presence will be with us? And this is the beauty of it all. This is like this is the hero moment in the story, all right? God said to Moses, I'm pleased with you because of that. I'm going to give my presence to the rest of the community. The rest of your people. There was one other that God said, I'm pleased with you. And this one, he said, in, in, in him, in this one right here, I am well pleased. I'm extremely pleased. He completely pleases me. This one, his name was Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. So where Moses, where God said, I'm pleased with you, Moses, and so I'm going to be with the rest of everybody else. The problem is that Moses couldn't do that for the rest of humanity. Moses was extremely limited. But this other one who came. And, and God looked at him and he, and he said, this is the one that I am well pleased with. This is the one I'm extremely pleased with. This is the one whose name was Emmanuel, who, who literally this picture of God being with us. This one closed the gap between humanity and God. This one, this, this great divide. Human, humanity over here without the presence of God. Literally no presence of God. And, and, and God the Father over here, this one, closed that gap and brought the two together. How? In Matthew 27, as, as he is hanging on the cross, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, in Matthew 27, what are, what are some of Jesus' last words? He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you utterly abandoned me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that word forsaken is extremely, it's a strong word. It's utterly abandoned. You've completely taken your presence away from me. You see this one who, who God the Father was completely pleased with, 100%. As he hung on the cross, this great reversal took place. And, and in this cosmic moment, all of the separation between God and humanity, every bit of that, the, the, those dark places in our heart where we push God out, all of the separation between God and humanity was funneled, was channeled onto Christ. And God the Father in this cosmic moment completely abandoned his son and turned his back on the, on the son so that it crushed him and Christ died for our transgressions and then as he was raised defeated death defeated the separation defeated sin oh grave where is your victory death where is your sting this great reversal took place on the, on the cross in which the separation that we have with God because 
we are a stiff-necked people because we are constantly forgetting the presence and the power and the glory of God because we're constantly making it about us. All, all of that was placed onto Christ and God turned his back on it. And therefore then we have life. We have the presence of God ever with us because of that moment. This kind of faith drives us then. When we recognize that we have been completely brought into the presence of God through Christ. The the scripture says that all the glory of God is found in the face of Christ. And there is no greater glory for us, no greater joy for us than to seek the face of Christ. And then to turn and to make that kind of glory known to the world around us. To literally become the hands and the feet of Christ in this neighborhood, in the city, and in our world. The Christ who took on our pain for us and died for us. There's no greater joy than to take that on ourselves and to display that to the world around us. It's the kind of faith then that moves us so far beyond religion. It moves us to a place where we walk away from our comfort zones. We walk away from that which is safe. We walk away from these structures that we place in our life to make sure that we're never hurt. We walk away from that for the sake of making his glory known to the world around us. It drives us to walk away from this place where we're constantly being like seeking self-fulfillment. We're constantly looking for things which will fulfill us in and of ourselves. It moves us away from this place of self-righteousness where we're trying to do things uh, which, which make us feel better about our sour state. It's the kind of faith that calls us to not live like simply religious people, but to believe in, in, a, in a God that is powerful and present and dynamic through Christ. Causes us to do crazy things. They shut down eight crack houses in their neighborhood as a result of their camping. And she opened her Bible and she began to read to them. And for a few precious moments, they listened before they opened fire. And there is nothing that death can do to us. It is not the worst thing that can happen to a Christian. So let let us believe in a a God who, who, who is dynamic, who is powerful, who is giving, who is extremely generous, and through Christ is ever present with us. This God who we can who we can we can seek right now. We can we can feel and, and experience his glory right now. But not only let us believe that, but let us live as if that is a reality. Pray with me. God, Father, we 
thank you for your presence that's with us. We thank you for the fact that even though we are stiff-necked, stubborn, selfish idolaters, that you have, have, have healed us, you have brought us back into relationship with you. And God, as we go about our dangerous mission that we have been called to, I pray that we won't seek places of comfort, that we won't seek self-fulfillment, self-righteousness, but that we will be completely and utterly consumed with this mission of experiencing your glory and then displaying your glory to the neighborhood around us, to the city around us, and to the rest of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.